All right, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to our first um, midterm seminar for what was EC450. It is now renamed GY450, but it is still as lovely as it ever was before. I promise. Um, and this is our um, sit, um, session for urban and regional economics. Tonight, we're um, very fortunate to have Tony Travers, who's head of LSE London and local expert guru and um, oft-quoted and oft-on-telly expert on London government and on kind of local government in general. And you're going to be talking about the purpose and work of the London Finance Commission. Excellent. And yeah, I know. It's very good and very useful to have it there. I can't you know? straight off the program. Well done, that's what I'm, I'm reading myself. Um, so tonight we'll have a talk for about, you thought about 45 minutes soon? 40, 45 minutes. minutes, and then we'll have time for questions afterwards, okay? And I will go ahead and just let you go. Right here. Okay, well, thank you very much. And um, uh, to say, it's amazing how fast the beginning of this term comes around every year, but here it is again. Now, um, I am indeed going to talk about the purpose and work of the London Finance Commission, but I want just to say a word, I'll come on to say a bit more about it in a moment, about its precise terms of reference, but it would be uh, misleading of me not to admit I'm the chair, or the chairman, depending on how you look at it, of the London Finance Commission, which was appointed by the Mayor, has a, a number of members, all party members, and has been commissioned for purposes I will describe in a moment to look yet again at um, a subject that has been considered on many occasions in the past, uh, which is the funding of uh, local government, in this case London's government, which isn't just local government because the Greater London Authority is uh, something rather different from merely uh, local government. But I'll come on to that in a moment. Now, I have to put this in some kind of historical perspective, just as a beginning. Um, for those of you who, who don't study this day and night. Um, British urban government, city government, had its heyday probably in the 19th centuries when cities were evolving off the back of um, industrialization, very much the way it's going on in other parts of the world today. And we saw the development of large municipal corporations, though not in London, it must be said. These were the big city local authorities that got charters through legislation in Parliament to set themselves up as city government, to set local taxes in order to provide services in cities such as Manchester, Sheffield, uh, Birmingham, Leeds, and so on. London was more complicated than that for reasons we don't need to go into in great detail today. London evolved rather differently and eventually had a city-wide authority uh, and slightly after that, the boroughs uh, that evolved into the boroughs we have today. Now, in this period of growth in municipal government, in urban government, particularly outside London but also within London, we saw the growth of public services within local government. Poor law, refuse collection, highways, utilities, sanitation, eventually picking up education indirectly through school boards and even uh, in London some of the earliest social housing still on display uh, at Arnold Circus in the inner east end. So we saw a great development of public provision within local government funded by a property tax called the rates and to a much much smaller extent uh, by grant-paid subventions from central government, paid out, paid out of national taxation. 
But it's worth stressing in this phase of the development of uh, urban government, it was very much a matter of local government raising its own money and spending it with national government, the imperial parliament, very much focused on governing the dominions and the empire, not nearly so much involved in what would today be called social provision within uh, the UK. In London, as I say, cities and parishes were reformed in 1899 to create metropolitan boroughs, the forerunners of today's London boroughs, which came about in 1965. A number of experiments, uh, they can only be seen as that, have been made over the years, uh, with the benefit of hindsight anyway, um, have been made with citywide government, first a board of works to build major infrastructure from the middle of the 19th century onwards, then the London County Council, then over a much wider area, the Greater London Council. These were forms of local government, but certainly in the case of the Greater London Council, vastly larger in terms of its population size, if, it's not, if not its powers, uh, than many other uh, municipalities in the country. In fact, of course, single-tier municipalities like Birmingham City Council were in their way very much more powerful. So we've seen the evolution of a two-tier system of London government, two-sphere system, as they say more cautiously in Canada, so as not to attribute hierarchy to the levels. Um, and, of course, as in the rest of the United Kingdom, funding for London's government came from the rates that property tax originally levied on households and businesses, but after 1990 only on households and reformed and from fees and charges, and originally, anyway, from small grants. That is relatively small in relation to the total spending. During the 20th century, this changed radically. A number of services were nationalised and or transferred to the responsibility of central government. Utilities, water, gas and electricity generally involved, evolved within local government or small uh, regulated private companies competing particularly for water in London. Um, so um, those were originally set up locally, then nationalised and then eventually privatised. Health and ambulances partly evolved health certainly within local government before eventually being nationalised and now we'll decide what's happening to it now and debate that on another day. Um, higher and further education, great swathes of what is today further education, colleges and Many of what are now the new universities started off their lives in local government, all now in the hands of central government agencies. Schools evolved within school boards in London. These were separate kind of local authorities, of the kind as are found in the United States, actually still today, um, often. And for many years, there was a so-called national system locally administered of schools, education alongside colleges. But these two are now gradually and significantly been transferred away from local government either to independent institutional uh, operation but with national oversight from the Department for Education. Transport in London has gone backwards and forwards between being a national institution that was started off as a private trust, was then nationalised, was then passed back to London, then nationalised again and is now in the hands of Transport for London and therefore indirectly uh, in, or therefore directly, I should say, responsibility of the Mayor of London, <coughs> Greater London, Newish Greater London Authority. During the 20th century, 
central grants to London government and indeed to local government more generally grew from being less than 5% of income to almost 80% of income for the services local authorities were by then providing. These, these uh, percentages are often thought somewhat misleading because today uh, if you exclude education from local government because that now receives a specific grant funding 100% of it then um, for the remainder, local government is 50% funded from grant, 50% from local taxation. The education is put back in and it still runs through local government's books. It's a 25-75% split. But what we can be sure about is that local government in London, London's non-national government, is far more dependent upon uh, central support and equalisation indeed through these grants than it once was. It's worth adding as a matter of local colour and note that the whole drive towards bigger grants and equalisation started uh, in the hands of Sydney Webb, in particular Beatrice Webb, founders of the LSE, wrote great tomes on this subject, and they more than any are kind of responsible historically for the orig origin of equalisation grants which grew into these uh, relatively large uh, subventions for local government. And of course, they needed larger subventions as local government itself grew, come back to that, as local government itself grew to go beyond utilities and public goods provision towards providing welfare, welfare which was much more expensive and where the costs of providing services varied significantly from place to place. So where does this uh, leave local government in the, the UK? Well, <coughs> if we look at um, over, uh, local government within the UK over time, uh, comparing, and these figures come from a number of sources, none of which I'm sure are strictly comparable, but they kind of give you the right picture. In the first column there, you see local taxation from the rates as it's grown, uh, grants as they've grown, and then the ratio between local taxation rates and grants going as it did from 18 to 1 to 0.23 to 1. Uh, so an enormous shift between these two sources over time. And indeed, if you look at rates as a proportion of UK taxes, interestingly, they've gone from being 24% of UK taxes in 1872, courtesy of uh, Foster Jackman and Perlman's great book on the subject, to 5% of UK taxation today. So if you think about the debate about council tax, how it bears down on people, how iniquitous it is, big debate, it is talking about just 5% of all UK taxes. The other 95%, this is the bit set by local government, is much less discussed. This is the bit that preoccupies us because it's visible, because it's transparent, because people get a bill through the letterbox for this and they don't for other taxes. Well, not unless you're a scheduled taxpayer, anyway, one or two of those in the room, I suspect. Now, what does this look like today internationally? Now, what this table does, and if you can read it, well done, it's not brilliantly easy to read, what this does is to look at a number of countries, federal countries and uh, unitary states there, it looks at the proportion of this, what this final column here is, is the uh, tax revenue as a share of GDP. So you see significant variations from 25% in the United States 
up to Sweden now, well actually relatively low, 44.5% lower than it used to be, that's for sure, it used to be 60% in Sweden. And then if you go back through the table, this column shows local and state or regional taxes as a share of GDP. So what you find here is that in Canada, for example, local and provincial taxes, 15%, equivalent 15% of Canadian GDP. In Germany, a federal state, uh, just about 11%. In Sweden, a unitary state, but with a lot of the big uh, devolution of uh, income tax to local government, 16% in the hands of local government. And the average for OECD is 8.9, and the United Kingdom, 1.7. So that's the 5%. Uh, figure we saw earlier represented now as a share of GDP. Now, let's say these are not from quite the same sources, uh, and so that 1.7 we might say, well, that's you know 35%. So you multiply it by three, take it to about five. Um, so there we have it. Um, so UK, by international standards, has a its local ta taxes represent a very small share of GDP compared with certainly all these larger countries, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Sweden, UK, and the United States. There are one or two other small ones, but they're generally not among the larger countries within OECD membership. So we can see that uh, local tax revenue in the UK is a relatively small share of GDP. Now, Let's have a look at these figures in a slightly different way again. I want to try and establish a picture of how big London's economy is and how much public expenditure is. And again, these are from further different sources. Um, these figures are, I think, about 29.10. So the G London's GBA, sort of not quite GDP, 274 billion. According to the Treasury statistics, uh, public expenditure was about 89 billion, now that's around 35, 30-35% of GBA GDP, which is of course much lower than the UK average and much, much lower than regions, so well, countries and regions in the north, much, much lower. And if you ask then, it's very difficult, to, much more difficult you think to work out which you know, how much of that is spent by central departments, the GLA and the boroughs, but on a like-for-like -like basis, the figures are broadly of this kind. Those of you with a long memory will actually remember I did use this precise chart last year in, the series, in a different seminar in this series. So, if you don't remember it, I do it every year. Um, so, but what the point this makes is that in London, central departments, particularly the NHS and the welfare budget, are responsible for significantly more public expenditure than the GLA or the boroughs added together. That's two to one ratio, actually. And the, the boroughs are responsible for twice as much expenditure collectively than the GLA. Now, these are net figures. The gross figures, including fair income and so on, will be slightly higher. But this is why, personally, I always describe London's government as a bottom-heavy two-tier system. That is, that the boroughs collectively have significantly more um, spending and therefore arguably greater authority and power, though in different spheres of public service, uh, than the GLA. And they certainly can't be ignored in any discussion of the future of London's public finance or government. 
The funding that is raised locally um, in London amounts to 4.3 billion in council tax, that's roughly 5% of the economy. There are additional fees and charges raised by the GLA and the boroughs, um, and they do collect five, over 5 billion in business rates, so under the current arrangements till April, all of that's paid across to the Exchequer. So there is a business property tax in London, which used to be a local tax until 1990, but is now has been nationalised and is currently paid across to central government. In fact, from April, half of this will be retained locally, so things are never as simple as even this makes it look. But the point I'm making here is if you think back to the 89 billion public expenditure figure, uh, and rather less than the GDP GBA figure, um, then uh, these figures are relatively tiny, relatively small as a proportion. So as in the rest of the country, local tax revenues, and even if you add fees and charges in, are a relatively small proportion of the expenditure and or GDP of the or GDA of the area. So that's just a summary of that really. London's public expenditure, about 89 billion in 29-10. And so the council tax would fund about just under 5% of all public expenditure. And even if you add half of the business rate in, as will happen in April, that would fund about 80% of all public expenditure. Obviously a bigger proportion of local government expenditure, but as we saw, local government expenditure is only a proportion of the total. And of course, in London, local taxation is an even smaller share in relation to all tax paid in London, because London, in other taxes, pays actually disproportionately rather more. Uh, proportionally rather more. So it's around, council tax is around 4.4%, below the 5% figure for the country as a whole, of all tax paid in London, at the business rate in about 7.1%. So even after the reform in April that's coming, it's council tax plus 50% of business rates is still under 10% of all the tax paid in London. And that is the background to the London Finance Commission. The LFC, the London Finance Commission, was set up by the Mayor of London to review London, London's tax and public expenditure position and to examine the possibility of greater autonomy. Terms of reference are summed up here. I'll uh, just quickly whiz through them. Comparisons with other countries, regions and cities internationally and indeed possibly within the UK. Uh, to examine the scale and distribution of London's public expenditure consider the plausibility of trying to separate off London from the rest of the country with some sort of Barnet formula type settlement and what that is I'll explain later but it's broadly uh, a way of allocating resources to Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland which links their spending in any one year with the total expenditure and changes from year to year in England. Um, to, to examine the potential to devolve to London's elected leaders more of the taxes Londoners, uh, that Londoners pay and control over expenditure, and to analyse the benefits, particularly with regard to promoting jobs and growth, um, of the advantages and disadvantages of different options and make recommendations. It's rather a long list, but that's what we're up to do. Now, 
certain amount of research has been initiated and indeed in some cases finished. So looking at this review in a historical context, I'll say a bit more about this in a moment, literature on the impact of devolution and decentralisation, London compared with other international cities, and so on. These are simply papers, bits of research based on those terms of reference. If we look at the review in its historical context, it is uh, wise not to be naive. There have been earlier studies of this issue. Uh, the Kilbrandon Commission, which looked at the devolving power to Scotland uh, and Wales back in the 1970s, looked briefly at finance. A little bit later, the Layfield Committee did it for Great Britain in great detail, and subsequently again, um, a so-called balance of funding review and then the Lyons inquiry chaired by Sir Michael Lyons looked at the issues between 2003 and as recently as 2007 when uh, Lyons reported. There was enormous amounts of study. The Layfield Committee remains a sort of definitive look at these issues and is a wonderful collection of research all available in, in the LSE library but as a result of all of these particularly Layfield and Rainsford Lyons no substantive, very little substantive reform. So the committee could cynically say, and there were one or two people in the room who would have been civil servants in the relevant department at the time, you could say, with the benefit of hindsight, it was seen to be a problem, the minister, minister set up a big inquiry, it went on for years, and at the end of it, that was it, nothing happened. But the inquiry as we were, took the sting out of the political issue for a while. However, we can't see London other than in also in the context of devolution that took place to Scotland and Wales in 1999 and in a rather different form it must be said to the GLA to London in 2000. The creation of the GLA was seen at the time as having partly constitutional implications, not nearly as much as to Scotland in particular. Scotland after all has its own parliament making laws over the bulk really domestic policy matters now and Wales is moving in that direction. So London's some way behind that, but it was seen by the government at the time as part of devolution. Interestingly, in Scotland and Wales, less than in London, uh, there was no fiscal freedom. In fact, Wales, Scotland was given the power to vary income, to basic rate of income tax up or down. Wales was given no such powers. London, which had access to council tax and to substantial fees and charges, in many ways had slightly greater freedom over its resources. <coughs> None of these new uh, countries or uh, parliaments or assemblies or mayors had significant responsibility over their finances. But what, what these reforms undoubtedly did was create dynamics for more reform. Tony Blair's uh, autobiography makes it clear that in some ways he didn't realise in advance by going for devolution, particularly in Scotland and Wales, it would create a, a, a dynamic for further reform that would never quite stop, but certainly hasn't stopped yet. The coming of local, uh, of, sorry, of, of devolved government for Scotland and Wales has triggered further reviews of their financial position. In Scotland, the creation of the Calman Commission, and in Wales, first the creation of the Holtham Commission and now the Silk Committee, um, have looked at the position of Scotland, Scottish government and Welsh government, and whether they need greater uh, fiscal 
and other freedom from the UK government. And of course, the debate about Scottish independence, which will lead to a vote in uh, the autumn of next year, has itself produced, which itself is a part of the dynamic, has generated a debate about the possibility of what's called Devo Max, that is a further move towards devolution to Scotland, even if they don't vote for independence. <coughs> this is very much the kind of dynamics that's been witnessed in other countries, that um, <coughs> separatist and nationalist movements use the political authority they gain from that dynamic for independence, or uh, nearly go for independence, to get concessions out of uh, federal or national governments which allow them then to get greater and greater and greater control over not only um, finance, but also over the services run within the devolved area. And of course, related, and more recently than all of that, at the end of last year, was the publication of Michael Heseltine's report about uh, growth and economic development in England, predominantly in England, which argued for greater devolution of power admittedly not to local government as such, but to localities, and not with tax-raising powers, but giving more control to localities over all the money collected centrally and then allocated to them. So uh, a rather more muted, but nevertheless devolutionally pushed there as well. So the review that's going on in London has to be seen against this background and, of course, much more beside. And, you know, it would be naive uh, not to recognise that not only is England and its public finance system very, very centralised in terms of you know, the control over, local, uh, over taxation, but that almost all earlier efforts at reform have not produced uh, significant change. So you know, let us not be naive. The literature that I mentioned, uh, looking at the literature on the impact of devolution and decentralisation, there's a fair amount of academic work done on this, much of it significant and important part of it here, um, my colleagues, is to put it, uh, to be honest, mixed. That is, there is little consensus on whether fiscal devolution is beneficial to economic growth or not, whether it leads to better government or not. Um, it's difficult to measure the degree of fiscal devolution to a region. That makes it more difficult to make precise calculations of this kind. And, of course, outcomes for any individual region are influenced by many factors, such as existing regional disparities, regional policy, national economic performance, and so on. What the literature also hints at, though, is that there is a preference for immobile taxes where there is fiscal devolution, that is, taxes that can't then start migrating from one place to another, or a tax base that can't do that, are preferable uh, than, uh, than those which could move. Now, um, the research on London compared to other cities is still ongoing. We've just had an interim report from the University of Toronto who are doing the work. And they're not only looking at New York, Paris, Berlin and Tokyo, that those are among the cities they're looking at. What is clear from the interim report is that London is significantly different in terms of its degree of in fiscal independence. All these cities and others have more than one local tax, 
and they have discretion over the setting of it, because I didn't add earlier, of course, that the one local tax there is in uh, London is, of course, capped by national government, which means you could argue that actually 100% of taxes in England are, and indeed in other parts, that certainly in England, are determined by national government. So the evidence suggests strongly that it's unusual to have only one local tax, and it's very unusual to have the degree of central uh, sort of dependence on central government grants that exists in London, and indeed across the rest of England. Now, looking at London's uh, tax and expenditure position, this is something that's been done in a report that's been commissioned by the City of London on our behalf, uh, looking at this, I'm uh, sorry, that work done by Oxford Economics, and what they have done is to consider the longer-term trend of changes in the tax yield in London and the like and the path, the likely path of public expenditure. Asking the question is the if you look at the predicted growth patterns, different parts of the country, different regions, is the London tax yield likely to increase? And if so, and the evidence from the research we've seen so far is that indeed the tax yield is projected to continue to grow faster in London than in the rest of the country, based on assumptions about growth in different parts of the UK, it raises the issue for the Commission of whether there is any possibility of capturing part or all of that growth, either through assigned taxes or locally determined taxes, assigned revenues or locally determined taxes, by the devolution of uh, either the whole tax or at least uh, central government assigning part of it to the locality. What's interesting is that in the city deal policy, which has been evolved for the rest of England, Greater Manchester has agreed a so-called earn-back deal, which has, insofar as it's possible to understand it, and that's actually not easy, um, I think it's fair to say, has at its origins the idea that Manchester could make investments in its economy, particularly in its transport infrastructure, and if those investments delivered uh, economic growth which somehow judged would not otherwise have occurred, and that produces higher tax yield, that a grant can be paid to Greater Manchester in lieu of the higher taxes thus produced. Now that's, I think, how it works. That's not terribly precisely defined, but it creates the, in, in, in a sort of outline form, shadow and outline form, the idea that it is conceivable for an area, and even within England, it's been conceded that an area could make investments locally, which would allow it to benefit from any uplift in the tax yield that is thus produced. And of course, the reform of the business rate that takes place in April has at its roots the idea that if councils can build up their local tax base, business rate base, or the 50% that they retain, that they will keep the uplift in that, at least for a time. So that's just for the business rate. This is going further than that and saying perhaps Greater Manchester could retain the yield of more than one tax if it could grow the local economy above what would otherwise have happened. Now, the London Finance Commission is currently deliberating. It's reached the awkward stage, if I can be honest, publicly. Uh, it is on the record, all of this, of course. But where we've got past the 
deciding what we'll do, the commissioning evidence and taking in evidence, and we've taken written and oral evidence in as well, which I should have referred to. Now we've got to the point of deliberating on the basis of all these research papers and the written and oral evidence uh, that has come in. And we're doing this against the backdrop of an understanding of projections of growth in the London population. <coughs> about 8.3, 8.4 million, according to the census, uh, and projected to grow to 9 million by 2020 and 10 million by 2030, even if it only grows to 8.7 million and 9.5 million in those, in those periods. It is a substantial further growth in a city uh, that has infrastructure of varying qualities and capacities. This is, has to be seen against the backdrop of a background of public sector capital spending in decline, at least in the short to medium term. There's no pretense, no expectation, given the shape of uh, deficit reduction policies and the strength of the economy or the lack of it, there's likely to be a big return to public sector growth in investment in the years ahead. So we've got a rising population in this city, uh, public sector capital in decline, and our deliberation appears to be forming around the question of how can London's government get greater capacity to develop the infrastructure it needs, railways, tubes, schools, health facilities, etc., in this world, with growth and contracting public sector uh, capital. Now, um, and we're then back to this question, this underlying question begged by the Greater Manchester Urban deal of um, how can, can London be given freedom to invest in schemes where there is some kind of gross payback? Um, and of course, if so, how would it be possible to use growing tax revenues to support investments that facilitated that growth? Now, this is going beyond where the Commission has got to, so I'm not deliberating now such as personally speculating, so we may never go. <coughs> Obviously, option, possible options for expanding London's uh, capital base, its, its infrastructure, would be to use the tax increment finance model, much discussed, but now only, as far as I can see, going ahead in its original form, uh, potentially at least a Battersea, a tax increment finance for those in the room who are not um, familiar with it, much used in the United States, uh, a, a form of development that allows an a development, uh, that is a good example, to go ahead with infrastructure that is built by borrowing money where the repayments on the borrowing will eventually be made from taxation generated by the new development. So it's a way of getting the investment into, a into uh, an area that will allow development to occur, which will in turn create tax payments, which can then be used to repay the debt on the infrastructure. Um, now, in the Chancellor's autumn statement, he uh, allowed the GLA to borrow up to a billion pounds to make this investment. It's not quite tax increment finance in its purest form, this, but with the idea that the repayments would indeed be made 
from, at least in part, from some of the uh, business rate yields that would come with the development around Battersea Power Station. Could that be used more widely? Well, only if the Treasury allowed it, and I'll come back to that issue in a moment. Another possible way forward would be, with nothing necessarily to do with the, private, with the public sector, would of course be to allow greater freedom in planning, greater freedom and directed, uh, sorry, public sector direction of planning matters, uh, so as to allow private capital to invest in what is currently public infrastructure. I'll come back to that in a moment in the context of this third, uh, this issue at the bottom here. And of course, another way of doing this would be new and improved private finance initiative type arrangements. Government is currently trying to evolve these. Private finance initiative uh, was used extensively by the previous government to allow the private sector to build public infrastructure and then lease it, in fact, to the, the private sector or build it, the public sector would then lease it as it used it over a period of up to 25 years. Didn't work out so well. Uh, often, particularly by hospitals, uh, and the government's now trying to come up with a, a better version of that. The difficulty with certainly two of these, uh, and this one has its own difficulties, is that any public sector project would see all public, all spending count towards London's share of public expenditure. That is, unless the London Finance Commission were to argue that London should be detached from UK public spending controls, we are left with the reality that all parts of the UK, including London as a subset of England, have in effect public spending totals set for them, which if they cannot be breached, makes it very difficult to imagine a finance commission of this kind coming up with new proposals for funding infrastructure, indeed raising revenues of the kind I'm going to discuss in a moment, that wouldn't simply allow, potentially anyway, London to spend more than the government through the Treasury had allowed. And that, that, that overriding um, public sector macroeconomic management issue in this country means that it is hard for us, without recommending this middle option, which is the private sector developing so-called public sector infrastructure, um, to, as far as I can see, uh, you know, there are limits to how far a commission of this kind can recommend um, unless we begin to breach the idea of UK public spending totals. Big difficulty for a commission of this kind. However, all commissions of this time, kind, using a number of principles to score taxes against accountability, do they allow accountability? Do they, are they transparent? Um, are they easy to collect? Five, six principles, almost all reports of this kind inevitably come up with. Come up, have we begun to examine a number of possible um, taxes that could be <coughs> to fund investment if it were possible to capture growth in them over time? Um, if we were able to make the infrastructure investment uh, that I've been discussing. So, as I said earlier on, previous reports and the evidence we've received have suggested that immobile taxes probably best within a uh, particular tax jurisdiction for devolved power. Property tax is good, property doesn't move. It's not to say that property taxes don't have 
competitive implications, but we are examining council tax, business rate, and indeed stamp duty, nothing to do with this commission, but the Mayor of London, as it happens, separately wrote to the <laughs> Chancellor asking if he could um, assume responsibility for stamp duty. Uh, nothing to do with us, but he determined to do that. Now, and there is no question that the current operation of council tax, business rates and stamp duty, council tax and stamp duty in particular, operate rather unusually in London. It might be good just to tell them on English. It might, yes. Thank you for that. That's very good. Stamp duty land tax. Council tax, I've mentioned, is a tax which all domestic properties pay, that is, all households pay, and is uh, based on uh, the selling price of the house, albeit the selling price of the house in 1991. And there are eight bands of value in 1991, and taxes are set on the basis of a, a number of um, effectively a pounded rate or a rate of pounds set on those uh, values back in 1991. So the average tax, the average housing tax paid in London today is probably about £1,500 per property per year. Very, very low for expensive properties compared with the equivalent property taxes in many cities overseas. However, there is a separate national property tax, stamp duty, stamp du uh, sorry, stamp duty, uh, land tax, which is, sold, is a tax on property transactions and is only, only paid when properties are bought and sold. So that one has in recent years seen the rates for higher value properties very substantially increased, producing a much higher yield, but mostly from expensive properties in the South East and London, mostly in London. So um, we, take, we took evidence, particularly from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, who argued that the operation of these taxes together with stamp duty in particular was uh, suboptimal, not particularly effective in London and that there might be a good case for having property taxes in London, even if they raised no more and no less than they did today, operating in a rather different way than they do. That would be a huge step to advocate that, still less to deliver it, but it is something that's been considered, and I think is actually taking place in Scotland. I think it's actually, Scotland is assuming control of standard duty, uh, as more or less as we speak. So, Property taxes, so we're examining those, and come to any decisions on any of this stuff yet. VAT, value added tax, yields four times as much as council tax, um, but uh, devolving it, it, it is not immobile, it's possible for people to move to shop in higher and lower tax jurisdictions. So, in any way, VAT could not have different rates in different parts of the UK under EU rules wouldn't preclude advocating a separate sales tax, so I think that would be quite a brave thing to do, um, on top of VAT, but that is plenty of sales taxes in local jurisdictions in other countries. Income tax. We shall look at income tax in some detail. Uh, it could be a locally set income tax, could be uh, an income tax which is simply an assigned share, perhaps London's assigned share, or a share of London's total payment of income tax, uh, retained locally and paid automatically to London. 
Once you do that, of course, because the yield of income tax is so substantial, it would actually, even if it's less a very small share of income tax, produce more money for London's government, local government, city, uh, boroughs and GLA together, than they currently spend. So then you'd be beginning to beg questions about whether there needed to be more service responsibilities handed to London's government to match the tax yield that it had attributed to it. So there is an, 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 an interplay, an interaction between the taxes possibly uh, available to municipalities and the services uh, that they provide. But anyway, we will consider income tax. Again, no decisions made on any of this. And as I said earlier on, this could either be to decide that the tax should be determined locally, and that raises the question of whether it's citywide or at the borough level, or whether they should merely, uh, the, the, the yield should be assigned to the city, which is not that dissimilar from a grant, in fact, but that can be undertaken in a way that allows the municipality greater access to the buoyancy of the tax yield than is true if it's simply dependent on grants where the government sets them from year to year. And then beyond these bigger revenues, there are a number of smaller ones, much discussed by all the other inquiries that have looked at this subject. So things like tourist taxes, you know, many people will pay tourist taxes, tourist bed taxes if they go to other cities overseas, many of the ones internationally that we're looking at seem to have tourism taxes, dog taxes, betting taxes, all sorts of taxes. Uh, in other beer taxes in some German cities, I noticed in the interim report we got the other day from the University of Toronto. Um, vehicle excise duty, that's a tax paid uh, by vehicles, an annual tax uh, they have to pay uh, to effectively operating the vehicle on the road. Uh, that would be much more prevalent in outer London than inner London. Tourist tax much more available in inner London than outer London, particularly central London. Various forms of environmental taxes, none of these yield an enormous amount. Road pricing. Now, London has a congestion charge. That's an interesting. London already has a congestion charge, a unique tax. It's not that other parts of the country couldn't set a uh, congestion charge. They have the power to do it, but they've all chosen not to do it. London does have congestion charge in a form of road pricing. It actually has one or two other taxes that other parts of the country don't have, including business rate supplement, which is a levy on the business rate to help pay for Crossrail project, and it had a small levy on uh, the council tax to help pay for the Olympics. Now, these are simply levies on existing taxes, but they are unique to London. Bit of a precedent there for having a slightly different tax regime in London than elsewhere, but road pricing is something London already has. Intriguingly, as we're doing this work for the London Finance Commission, it would appear that road pricing is, which has always slightly spooked governments in Britain, uh, is beginning to move back towards the political agenda of po possibility, it would appear. Not necessarily only for new roads. The government is considering, moving back to considering, the possibility of some form of road pricing. Now, of course, in principle, in theory, if road pricing or any form of road pricing were substantially introduced uh, in a congested place like London, it has the potential to raise very substantial amounts of money. Uh, and work's been done in the past to show you that. So um, there's a, an array of smaller revenues that we've been looking at. 
and as I say, we're all this is all to be deliberated upon and decided upon. Um, but um, and these are not this is not an extensive, this is an extensive, not a full list of what we might consider. We might reject all of them. My colleagues may decide that everything is perfect and nothing new is needed, or on the basis of the highly centralised nature of public finance, may decide that London should be uh, more like some of the cities overseas, and, uh, all, all, and some of whom use all of these taxes. Some of them have sales taxes, some have property taxes, some have income taxes, some have these kind of taxes at the bottom, some have dozens of little taxes. Uh, none have only the one tax, the little property tax that London has. So, the evidence gathering is now completed. Our research papers are largely completed. You can visit uh, the London Finance Commission website, should you be so uh, impelled to look at what's on it. Much of the, research, of the evidence is there. Some of these research reports are there. An interim report was, I think, due to be published today. Uh, I say that with, all, with due humility and care. I can't, I can't actually remember if it was today when I came to do this, and it's not a good sign. Uh, I think it's today it's going to be released, certainly this week. Um, we started to deliberate at a December meeting, we'll continue to do till, so till April, and the report, which will be to the Mayor, is going to be published in May. It was originally going to be April, but that risks tripping over the PERDA period, as it's called, for local elections. There aren't local elections in London, but there are elsewhere. So uh, we will actually delay to early May for our final report. So it won't have taken that long, probably nine months from beginning to end. Um, and our hope is, even though this is a report to the mayor, that we, you know, going back to what I said earlier on about the many inquiries that have looked at these issues before, and none of which have led to any substantive reforms, you know, we mustn't be naive and imagine this one will. But equally, we mustn't imagine that we're doing all of this for nothing. So, uh, you know, we have to hope that we can embed some of these ideas in the policy-making machinery of the major political parties and to begin to move London along. Remembering that London, after the original bout of, um, after the GLA was created in 2000, has twice since then, in 2007 and 2011, seen increases in the services attributed to the GLA. So there have been further moves towards devolution to London. <coughs> what we now need to do is to try to embed the idea that <coughs> with this kind of structure of government and the power, the scale of London and its government, that it's possible to embed any devolutionary ideas that we come up with in the major political parties as they come up with their policy uh, manifestos for the future. Thank you very much. Five, five, five to six. Five, five to six. Five so six. we do have time for questions. Yeah. Tony, um, whenever these kind of discussions come up, there's always the question of equalisation. Yeah. Are you looking at getting a larger share of the national uh, pot for London? And is that actually a major? No. I mean. Again, I think when the, you know, the mayor is a politician, after all, when the terms of reference, when he originally announced the London Finance 
Commission, which was, I think, originally in his manifesto in the run-up to the 2012 election. Uh, it was very much in terms of getting Londoners money back. Now, um, in truth, um, a, commission, a commission that came up with a proposal that was that at a time of constrained public expenditure, it should be taken the rest from the rest of the country and given to London, uh, I suspect was never going to get very far. That was my personal view, and it remains that. Having said that, if we look ahead, the, the idea that areas should be allowed to um, have access to their tax base and keep any, some of any growth they can achieve in it is already being introduced in April this year with the reform of the business rate. So we don't have to say that's a new idea. The government itself is doing that. The Manchester Earnback people goes further than that in that same direction. So I think looking ahead, there is some space to argue that um, you know if the business rate reform goes ahead with the express, the express purpose of allowing boroughs and the GLA to compete with each other and with the rest of England for the business rate base, <coughs> then why shouldn't other taxes allow London and indeed other cities to build up their tax base and keep some of that yield? Now, that, that would be the kind of logic of the government's own reforms extended beyond just the business rate and indeed the council tax, because you'll, you'll know better than me, council tax has now also been subjected to inter-authority competition by the introduction of a grant called the New Homes Bonus. So on both council tax and business rate in the future, now and from April to the business rate from now on, councils can build up their tax base and keep the yield at least for a time in the system as it previously operated, if they built up their business at their tax base, they didn't keep any of the extra yield. So tax competition is becoming a feature of this system. So <clears throat> if we conclude, and I can't preempt this, that uh, this idea is one that has some merit, <clears throat> then it would be a way of allowing London, as its tax base expanded, as its population grew, to capture some of the growth in the tax yield and then reinvest it in itself. But, um, you know, but can you have all of that in equalisation too? Well, yeah, you can, because every now and again the government resets all the rules for um, the complex new arrangements for the business rate, which allow it at that point to introduce inter-authority equalisation if it wants to. That would obviously negate the process. No, but it depends whether you do it 100% equalisation. I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, but there is a, 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 um, sort of a kind of an intellectual difficulty, isn't there, in all of this, which is if you have full equalisation, no authority can ever build up its tax base. If you allow any authority to build up its tax base, you can't have full equalisation. And what we're doing is slightly moving away from the Webb's um, desired system of full equalisation back towards a system which not only has existed in this country in the past, but which exists in many other countries. Because there are very few countries that have the scale of equalisation between uh, municipalities that this country does. 
this is a very high level. The system we've operated has had a very high level of equalization, and by equalization, again, for those who are not uh, studying this day and night, it's a grant system that measures differences in the need to spend and pays grants that equalize between authorities in their assessed need to spend, and separately, in the same grant, however, equalizes for differences in taxable capacity. So that means that currently in London, the poorest areas have the highest spending and the richest areas have the lowest public spending, which is unusual by international standards. One gets a sense about this, there's a lot of principle attached to it, you know, we, we, we ought to have it. But is there a different, in your view, is there a different investment agenda or different investment outcome which is sort of attached to the greater autonomy of London. That, I mean, I, I'm thinking about historically, in one sense of the municipalisation, as you outlined at the end of the 19th century, was driven by cities who wanted to do certain things. Yeah. Uh, at the moment, I mean, if we were, if we said, yes, we want to do this, not do that, then the argument perhaps becomes politically stronger. But I just wonder if there is a... Yeah, no, I think, I mean, there's no, I mean when I, enjoy uh, our, our colleague George Jones, who couldn't be here today because of the snow on the high hills of North London, it's quite snow out there, um, <laughs> when he saw these slides, told me, well, what's all this stuff about growth, he said. I mean, surely councils should just have freedom to do what they want. It's nothing to do with growth. That's just the present government's here today, gone tomorrow agenda. Fair point. Um, but um, I think that um, the I mean, the, 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 I think there's a perfectly reasonable, local, pro-democracy, pro constitutionally defensible position that says, in a plural democracy, in a democracy, in our kind of system, there ought to be different centres of power. Those different centres of power ought to have their own um, autonomous sources of income and that that's part of a proper constitutional settlement. Most countries would have a constitution that defended that precise system as I've described, but not most, many countries, many countries. We don't have a constitution. Um, that may be partly related to the gradual or the capacity of um, national government in Britain to extend its macroeconomic control effectively over all taxes and over all revenues and all spending, which is kind of where we've got to. Um, and so I think there is a perfectly good argument in principle, for democratic principle, for having authorities other than the state central authority with uh, local authorities, which have their own autonomous income sources and their own freedom to act. And that, you might argue, would be enough. And I think that's what George would have argued were he here. That's a perfectly good, a perfectly respectable argument. Does that, does, that, does that answer your question? Well, I, I, no, I, I agree with that, that, but I'm just thinking about whether there are things that Boris or the Mayor or Londoners want, uh, want to have that autonomy to spend money on. Bearing in mind, as you said, there is that kind of public expenditure cap on London. In a sense, if a school <laughs> needs to be built, I don't care who pays for the school so long yeah. as the school is built. And I'm not sure that this would necessarily result in, given the, the public expenditure cap, would result in what, what schools being built more rapidly or possibly more slowly, who knows? 
Well, I suppose, if, I mean, to, to use a, it's not a reductio ad absurdum because it's what happens in the Basque country. If, the, if London were the Basque country, where, um, as I understand it, the, uh, within the Spanish system, the Basque country simply determines all the taxes. And the, is anybody from Spain here that I get this worse? And, and tell me if I've got this wrong. And the, effectively, the government in Madrid agrees a payment, does it not, with the Basque country. So it's in the reverse of, of our system. So, in effect, the Madrid government, Spanish government, precepts off the Basque country by agreement. And other than that, uh, the Basque country sets all the taxes. That's the precise reverse. Now, interestingly, the Basque country's um, economy, as again, correct me if I've got this wrong, as I understand it, is in no worse a position, arguably a rather better position, than many of the other autonomous regions in Spain currently. And that being the case, which is quite interesting to me, uh, uh, so the question would then be, if, if you imagine London the other way around, because the autonomous region of London setting all its own taxes, but then agreeing a transfer to national government, then the question is, would it make decisions in its own interest more, in a way that is more, I'm not trying to say right, more, more appropriate for London. Would London make decisions? Now, our clear decision is in Scotland, they would, because we're about to give them lots more power to do that. Would London make decisions about taxation, about property taxation, about the way it invested money? For example, my, my guess is that because London is so much more dependent on infrastructure than the rest of the UK, railways, for example, but not only railways, it would spend more of its income on infrastructure than England than the UK as a whole did. Because those are the signals that, you know, as you studied public choice theory, not I ever have much, would suggest that you that's the answer the electorate the, the electorate that's the message the electorate would send. That might mean more on infrastructure investment, it might mean less on consumption than the England or UK average. So um, that, I think, is the way you have to look at it. You know, would the decision making? And there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of economic theory, on some economic theory, uh, that suggests that the more taxes are spent nearer, sort of spent nearer to the point they're raised, the more efficiently the money will be used, and the more precisely and appropriately it will be used. But there are economists in the room who will be able to try and not uh, tell me if I've got that right. Uh, Tony, you've concentrated on um, uh, the question of taxation and raising money as, uh, as in order to get more control for the mayor and the local um, interest. It, it, um, my question is, is it, um, is it realistic to assume that um, even if you were lucky enough to get more money, that the central government would really reduce any of its um, various controls over how, how the local authorities spend it, in London in particular, um, both for capex and for revenue expenditure. Um, it, it seems to me a bit unlikely, for instance, that with major transport schemes that the uh, immensely complicated and um, uh, ineffective methodology for appraising schemes would be any different in London, even if you've got more money for doing it, just as one example. It's a very good question, and I mean, not again not unique to London or, I mean, 
nothing to do with this study. If you look at the, the reforms to higher education funding, these are moving in the direction, as far as I understand it, to the point where soon fees will cover most or all of the costs of universities, and yet the government will still determine what happens with the money and who, what students have taken and everything. It'll all be, you know, it'll all be done through. So um, it's not, yeah, so, you know, this is a very, very centralised state. Are you, are you examining it, though? Because you might just, even if you achieve more money, you might just achieve a pyrrhic victory. Well, I mean, this is why uh, I didn't go into the Barnet formula. I'm, I mean, the, the, the Barnet formula, again, which I touched on earlier on, which for those who are not steeped in all of this, is a mechanism evolved temporarily in the late 1970s to ensure that changes in public expenditure in England, fed through into Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, adjusting for population in a precisely proportionate way. That has the, ex the interesting side effect that it ensures that the government cannot, if it's, for example, if Scotland raised more money locally, it, it, it ought to mean that Scotland wouldn't be penalised by the UK government taking money away from it. You can build that kind of protection. And although there are critics of the Barnett formula as it now operates, because it just freezes for all the time, the relative levels of spending in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, you could argue that if London were to want to be more autonomous, it would need a for something akin to the Barnett formula, i.e. to separate out its spending, uh, its existing spending levels, so they can't be tampered with if London then had more autonomy over its finances and then chose to raise more or less money from taxation. So you would have to build in protections of that kind to ensure that national government didn't uh, start to adjust funding for London if it decided to tax itself more or less. So is your, uh, but my question is, is, is your report going to cover these aspects? or are you It will look at that. Yeah. What it can't look at, of course, is the, the point you, <clears throat> I mean, I've given a presentation like this once before where a dear colleague from UCL uh, said, something that boiled down to surely none of this will ever change unless there's some kind of apocalyptic change in Britain. I mean, he didn't quite put it like that, but that's what he was kind of getting at. And, <clears throat> you know, he, he, one has to be realistic and say that the power of argument, looking back to the earlier inquiries, which have pretty well, without exception, argued for greater devolution away from central government of tax-raising powers and autonomy to the local level, and which successive governments of all powers, of all control, have rejected and ignored. And in fairness to the present government, it is fractionally increasing the um, proportion of taxes held at the local level, albeit in a slightly odd way. But it's not a revolution. This is not a British revolution. Just a quick point of clarification. Yeah. We're talking about this as London overall, um, but currently we have a system where we have poorer councils who get more money, yeah. richer councils who get less money. Would the general idea behind this be that it's a London overall sort of win back, a claw back of, of tax base, and then that would be distributed <coughs> out as as it was, well, in, in whatever kind of way people wanted? 
in which case you would end up with potentially some very bad losers and some great winners. Yes, I mean, I think that um, an, un, an overriding principle of the, of the way we will continue to approach this is that any change we suggest should not, at the point of reform, either lead to higher or lower public spending or taxes in London and the rest of the country, or within London in any one borough compared with any other borough. Okay? So that there mustn't be, at the point of the precise point of change, any redistribution. But the problem is it's breaking down the principle of equalization. It is. And therefore, once you break down, it changes the discourse. And once you move away from equalization, it becomes easier and easier to keep marching down that path. It does. And indeed, as I said, the reform is a perfectly is a good point. And I mean, the, the reform that comes into effect in April, that is, allowing councils throughout England to keep 50% of the business rate and then any growth in the business tax rate will inevitably lead to a redistribution of resources between, I choose an authority, not a random, Suffolk, which has enormous potential to grow uh, business rate and council tax, and indeed is doing so, and particularly one outside London like, say, um, Bradford, which is still suffering structural economic decline. It will inevitably, and is intended, to have the effect of rewarding growth and kind of penalising not growth. Which eventually then makes you go into a spiral of even less growth. Indeed it does. And, you know, you, you, you have to... Um, that's why the reform that's taking place on the 1st of April, forget all this stuff, is an important one because it's moving away from equalisation principles that have been you know, developed from Sydney Web onwards and still just about function to a new system from April the 1st, which is partly, partly, and I stress partly, a winner-takes-all system because in the new system, all the embedded equalisation is there in year one, but over time, authorities can move away from it in different directions. The government resets it after seven years, and at that point, they could decide to put some more equalisation back in. But as somebody said earlier, and I think the more you do that, the more it negates the incentive effect. So, you know, and this comes down to a, a, a debate which colleagues here have had and been having on and off in different departments for some time, whether you follow a sort of, uh, you know, the arguments put most, clear, most crystally clearly by Tim Leunig, uh, which boils down to, you know, we should allow the more successful areas to develop, keep their tax yield, pull ahead, and that that would be better for the United Kingdom, because the, the areas that develop fastest will be those that should develop fastest, because that's what market signals are suggesting, and the areas that will not any longer be economically productive would fall behind. And you know, this is then you're into the planning system, should we allow Cambridge to become the modern Manchester? Discuss. There are people who think we should. And again, these debates take place, they're well beyond the government finance debates, but you're right to point out the fact that the reforms that take place in April, and this will be an excellent subject for a dissertation, I would have thought, do begin to move us away from 
an, an equalization uh, system, a full equalization system towards one where winning is rewarded and uh, where, or where growing the tax base is rewarded and where the tax base declines is penalized. And that will have effects. And it's designed to have effects. Nobody knows what they are yet. Good guess. Um, can, can you just um, clarify, is, is this report covering um, three aspects of, of local taxation? The first is, um, as you point about universities, a lot of, a lot of the grants and the fees are highly hypothecated to a particular activity. And one issue is there's too much hypothecation of grant and activity, and that we should give local authorities freedom within the same total expenditure to, to spend as they think fit, which is what I think the total place Indeed, thing yeah. was all about. So the question is part of your uh, commission to advocate total place irrespective of other things. Um, it, 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 uh, second, there is, as, as you said, the issue about um, uh, reward and how you should reflect reward and how that reward plays against an equalization dynamic um, uh, because uh, as you say by definition uh, the more reward to the more successful areas uh, then equalization is that much less and then the third issue are, are there new forms of uh, taxation which you highlighted like the examples you gave for hotel tax or tourist tax and so on um, which should should be enjoyed by the local state rather than the central um, uh, authority. Now, I take it you are covering all these three yeah. dynamics in this yeah. report, and More so you, you'll be wanting, uh, you know, you could do a best mix of what they should be, or you could say to the government, well, if you don't like this, I you don't want to give up stamp duty because that takes you into all sorts of different territory. Um, nevertheless, you know, a reinforcement of pooling would help a bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we will have to look at all the things you suggested. We will. I mean, I, for, for time's sake, I didn't go into it, all of this. Um, but, you know, if public expenditure in, in London is about 90 billion, if you hoik out all the stuff that central government spending on itself and military barracks, um, you know, the question of the Foreign Office, the question of how much of the other 80 billion could be run uh, locally is one that we have indeed had evidence about. There are borough leaders, for example, who think that, and we've had evidence on this, and not only from borough leaders, that the, the welfare budget could only be better used, uh, and certainly housing benefit could only be better used if it was seen alongside housing, capital, and other revenue. Uh, all, all the revenues available for housing in London. And you know, there's virtually a political consensus about housing. That is, if you were to take housing capital resources from the public sector, housing capital resources from the quasi-private se voluntary sector, housing association, and housing welfare benefit, um, and pooled it, and London used it for its own best interest, and there's been an IPPR report along these lines, it would be better. I think, and that's something that people in all parties appear to, I, mean, I don't want to quote this because we haven't got to this decision, but there appears to be quite a consensus on that issue. You can go beyond that into other benefits. Many boroughs and all political parties think, you know, 
benefits could be better used. And that, so, yeah, you're right. We can go beyond merely taxes and beyond um, the existing scale of the London government. And indeed, you know, as discussing it now, I can begin to see some wonderful sort of four-dimensional diagrams um, to try to explain the various dimensions to the issue. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anybody, anybody who's got a um, software package that draws four-dimensional diagrams, do tell me. Publish it as a pop-up book. Pop-up book, that's probably four, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, I think one's one, Mark. Tony, just... Um, I struggle, difficult to keep up with all the numbers there, because there's a lot of that. Yes. Um, but this, this should be all be on the website. Yeah, the way sure. It, was, it just made me wonder whether, if we still had the pre-1980s the pre uh, local government, local rate, yeah. and we'd had 1990 revaluation and continuing up rating, quite a chunk of this would not be there. The, quite a, the sort of issues that Nick was raising about how spending is capped and all that kind of thing. And some of the relationships you're talking about would be there. But I think a lot of the revenue, I couldn't quite get my head around what the relativities were then. Yeah. But I wonder if that's a, a view that that actually is some of what we've, some of what we're scratching around to replace is really that fairly substantial way of funding local government uh, 30 years ago. Yes, I mean, you're again, absolutely right, because the, I mean, there's a, again another of these issues which is nothing for and of itself to do with the London Finance Commission or London, which is local government in Britain's current tax, which is the council tax, uh, property-based property tax, which for all sorts of reasons is politically toxic. And uh, it's politically toxic probably for more than any other single reason, as many people will know. But it was reformed. It, it is the offspring of the poll tax, which itself was a fatal mistake politically to replace the rates between 1990 and 1993. And that has made national politicians of all parties, let's put it bluntly, afraid of the visibility, transparency, and other good qualities of local taxation. And so they dare re revalue it. Neither party dares revalue it because there'd be winners and losers. Um, the present government, as in fairness has the Scottish government, has capped it for several years now. So here's a tax uh, which can't be whose value can't be uprated, it would appear. Um, which is frozen and capped. It's capped and frozen, if you can see what I mean. It's, first it was capped, level maximum increase year on year. Now it's frozen, nearly. Um, and so you're right, if, if it had been revalued and um, allowed to increase in the normal way, it would raise billions more than it does today. You're absolutely right. And indeed, as I hinted earlier on, if you think about the most expensive properties on in London on for sale today, which cost upwards of fifty million pounds and some significantly more than that. But there will be properties on the market in London this afternoon which cost fifty uh, million pounds. They will pay if they are in Westminster or Kensington and Chelsea a council tax of around two thousand pounds a year. The equivalent properties in New York would pay 
$150,000 a year in local property tax. That in the land of low taxes and the free. Any Americans here, if I go and wax lyrical about another country's system, I only partly understand, but it's true. If you look at property taxes in New York, City has much in common with London. Um, they are, the property taxes are very much higher in relation to value. So you could have, but the difficulty we now have is that if there were, you know, and, and many in the room will know that the Liberal Democrat part of the coalition talked about a so-called mansion tax, a kind of top rate, new one or two band top rate in the council tax to raise more money from the same people that the stamp duty reform was aimed at. The problem with that, of course, is that the government would raise the money and then reduce government grants to local government pound for pound. So um, local government would be no better or worse off. It might be slightly less dependent on central government, but in the end it wouldn't make any difference to local government because the government uses grants and local taxation within a, an envelope, as they call it, as a balancing item each on the other.